Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame. Episode 48. I'm Jamie Berger. My guest today is writer, storyteller, comedian, radio maker, and author of the 2010 memoir, The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance, Elna Baker. You may have heard Elna tell stories on The Moth or This American Life for the past six years, where she's also a staffer. I'm not sure exactly what her title is even now, but we, we talk about that. Uh, Elna and I have met a few times through New York comedy world friends. Earlier this year, we ended up having dinner with a group of friends after a show at the New York Podcast Festival. And I found myself, or okay, I made sure I found myself sitting across from Elna and her This American Life boss, Ira Glass. And while Ira was <laughs> uninterested at best when I found my way around to talking about my podcast about fame, Elna seemed genuinely interested in the topic, and now here she is. It's especially gracious of Elna and anyone involved with a show like This American Life to come on something that's all about lengthy, free-form conversations, because it's pretty much the opposite of their aesthetic and their mission of what they do. They make beautiful, challenging, highly produced, polished little gems of thought and storytelling. I do something else. I don't really blame Ira for not wanting to listen to my show. It's not what he likes. Don't get me wrong. Anyway, special thanks to Elna for coming on because of that. We talked about some of her recurring themes, uh, Mormonism and her leaving it as a young adult, her 100-pound weight loss, and a whole bunch of other really interesting stuff. I, I was going to go on with a list, but I just hate pitching things. Check this episode out. Elna is great. Oh, but I will pitch this one thing, because you might not hear about it anywhere else. We also ended up uh, revisiting a live show that Elna and a bunch of colleagues put on six years ago at the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival that included Ira Glass, uh, Rachel Maddow, John Hodgman. The list really does go on. It was called The Drunk Show. You can't hear or see that anywhere on the internet or anywhere, although Elna says there is a, t a video somewhere. But to the public, the drunk show lives on. Only an infamous legend. A legend I am proud to carry on. Elna Baker and I spoke on the phone on a Friday evening in early October. Hi, Elna. Hi. Um, so I have to switch into funny mode. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> you could switch into really earnest and moving mode. You are of a category of person who I, I don't know that fame is a big thing for you, but the idea of uh, expressing personal things that you have delved into. And I'm just wondering, was that just, do you feel a need to express that? 
to people outside yourself, to a greater, to people you don't know? I have a weird, I guess, in my mind, I, and I think maybe this is part of how you trick yourself into saying such personal things. But in my mind, it's almost as if I don't know people are hearing it. And that makes me feel a little less weird. Uh, And I also feel like a lot of the stuff that I have put out uh, is in a way like crafted. I mean, it is, it's very crafted and it's like um, mold over and the stories usually all hit a point in the story where I feel like it's not authentic for some reason. And part of that reason is that I'm not totally telling the truth. And I feel like often stories that I grew up on or the way that people behaved within the community that I grew up in, which was Mormon, was um, any failure, any insecurity was hidden. And there was a presentation of life and of happiness and everything's going great, uh, partly because there's a belief that, um, you know, God blesses you with prosperity. And so the people whose lives are going well are more righteous. And so if you admit that things are going wrong, you're also sort of acknowledging that maybe you're not following all the rules and you're not as righteous. And so a lot of this inner world is kept a secret. And I feel like it drove me crazy as a kid. And a lot of the reason I am so open is in direct rebellion of that. I listened to the Tell Me I'm Fat story again today, and I cried again today, a year later, even though I knew what was going to happen. After that, that piece ends, and it made, made me wonder about what, how the conversation goes on with your husband after that. H- has it, and have you, have you thought about you know, writing about it again or discussing it again? Yeah, it's definitely something um, I've, I've kind of, we're actually like smack dab in the middle of, I would say. And and we're like, we're together, we're in this together as a couple. Um, and we're fighting to like make our relationship work, right? So all of this I'm saying comes from a place of like, I guess what I've discovered about love because we, we started going to couples therapy which I think is great. I think every couple should go to couples therapy. It's such an interesting exploration of the other side of love. But one thing that um, has been surprising as I've gone to couples therapy is that I think I had a very naive, almost girlish idea about love in that it was um, much more romantic, you know, and I kind of wanted to keep it at that place. And so going to couples therapy and also reading um, several books that our therapist had us read on the psychology of love to me has been like the worst news ever. (laughs) Like I'm just finding out all of this stuff about the reasons you behave a certain way in a relationship that have to do with your childhood, that have to do with your upbringing. And it's almost, you know, it's like I've only lived on the surface of the lake And now I'm learning what's in the lake. Uh, And I think a big reason that I was drawn to my husband when I look at it through that lens is that he was a kind of classically handsome, tall, dark hair, uh, athletic, captain of the football team, homecoming king. Uh, he, He was sort of your 
your traditional like Prince Charming aspire to be with this guy exactly and I think as a fat girl who was told by the world that I would never be loved there was this real obsession I guess or fascination with conquering or conquering sounds terrible (laughs) (laughs) no you conquered his ass that's good but I mean with it with with being with somebody like that you know in a way that now that I'm I think the fat show snapped me out of it in a sense. And I think what was so devastating about that show was that um, I think that what I wanted was to be with somebody like that who loved me no matter what. And that would prove to me that I was worthy of love. And so to find out that my husband wouldn't have loved me if he'd met me when I was fat or gone out with me, I think really disrupted the core of what I... um, felt like was it's been hard to go back the bubble burst if that all makes sense but here you are a year plus later yeah it's like i wish i was just making these stories for the radio and that i wasn't taking them so seriously (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) this is funny funny episode everybody (laughs) um laugh a minute i i shouldn't have started off by saying you didn't have to be funny what was there anything before I look at my list of things that occurred to me to think of you that you thought of when you were like, okay, I'm going to talk to Jamie about fame. I think that I have a weird relationship to it. Um, I don't know. I, I actually have not tried to put this into words, so we'll see how it goes. But I was thinking about this recently because um, I uh, sold a TV show about a year ago. And, you know, I have been writing it and, you know, it deals with personal issues. It deals with my family. It deals with my thoughts on Mormonism in a way that I've never put out into the world. Uh, it's, it's, I would say, the, the riskiest thing I've ever tried to, to do artistically. Um, and, um, you know, now we're kind of in this position of, of, finding out uh, if it will or will not be made, right? And so there's also stress about whether all this creative work even happens. And I think that in the last year and a half specifically, it's like I've been thinking about my life in terms of a TV show and kind of not living my life. And when now that I've grappled with the idea that, oh, none of this, very possible that none of this will be made that I won't have made a TV show and then kind of taking a step back and looking at why why do I want to make a TV show like of my life and I, and I also noticed like all my peers in comedy that's sort of what everyone strives for it's like we we want to make this TV show but also I think that's on the the level of like people who have been working in this field striving for it. But then I also feel like across our culture, there's this desire to to make your life into a TV show or to somehow have your life validated, the things that you see validated via a larger platform, your own show. Uh, and, And I actually think it's super weird. I think that's very, very well put. Yes. So, so, so the idea is kind of a like a, a, a Lady Dynamite, Marin Louis kind of thing. 
the show I'm making. Yeah. I think what I've discovered, you know, cause even in just like trying to write a scene with my family, right. And like what would happen at a typical dinner table with each person bantering back and forth. It's like you sit down and you try to write it and you can't like, capture it. And then there's a the frustration of not being able to capture it. But also it's like, why there's a part of you that wants to, um, take a real moment and preserve it forever by recreating it. And actually you'll never be able to do that. Right. We, we just come as close as we can. Yeah. And, um, and I think that there's this, uh, idea behind fame of, um, like, uh, and this is super embarrassing, but I, I will admit to this and then also say that I've asked other people and it turns out other people do this too. So it's not totally crazy, hopefully, unless I just so happen to ask the few people who do it. But I think ever since I was a child, I, uh, not like teenager, I would think of like if what my acceptance speech would be. Oh, sure. If I was in like an awards show or something and who I would thank and who, who the people were in my life that I would thank. Um, and, you know, even practicing it, I would get emotional and thinking of thanking these people. But that actually the impulse was just uh, gratitude for people in my life. But I filtered it into the narrative of like, I actually never called those people and thanked them. I never said like on a daily basis. It's like you're, you're trying to aspire to this moment where you get to be in the spotlight and thank people. And I also think that's a weird thing that we all have in our brain. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that is a question I, I tend to ask people, uh, especially I ask people how it's felt who have made those speeches Two a one. They're like, don't make anything hoping for those moments because those moments are really not only are they like feel like they're three seconds long, but even in the moment, they're not that pleasing uh, when you're actually there. You got to make the work for the work, which, of course, is true. I can't remember where I was going from that. But as you were speaking, I was imagining uh, character Elna in the bathroom trying to recite that speech. Well, and I've become interested in like the thoughts that precede that speech, you know, because that speech you make in your head is a reaction to something. And so in, in trying to track that and think like, what is this coming? Why does this exist? This imaginary, like triumphant speech. And usually it's either coming, it's coming out of like a place of hopelessness and insecurity or wanting to give up then I'm, you know, you motivate with like all the people who've contributed to helping you be creative, but it's still fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. And it also relates to your most recent piece. And that is to make the grand gesture towards someone. Oh, yes, totally. You know, that, that you get to thank them on the Oscar podium. Um, I'm a grand gesture. I used to be a grand gesture addict as well. Um, Everybody, recent This American Life, Elna has a piece about her desire to make grand gestures 
and why you no longer do it, right? No, I'm not. As, it, but it, I, I was like all about the grand gestures. It, that all said, are there people who, who immediately come to mind who not just the thank yous, but the people who you've never met, who you'd want to see you up there and thank for their inspiration in life, you know, as, as, as a, you know, a bigger, a more famous person <laughs> uh, who's inspired what you do? I don't know why this one just came to mind, but I, like Bette Midler, when I was a girl, was such a, um, it's such a, it was just crazy to see somebody who didn't, um, I mean, Bette Midler was beautiful, but like, she didn't look like every other sort of um, Jane Fonda-esque Hollywood type. And she was funny. And she had this vibrant um, scene-stealing light to her that uh, I I feel like she gave me hope that um, you could be yourself and and be appreciated for it. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, like, I didn't grow up, I didn't grow up with a lot of pop culture, partly due to being Mormon, but also partly to moving overseas as a kid and television being in Spanish. So I missed out on a lot of, like, uh, I can't make that many cultural references. I can now. I've caught up a little. But when people nerd out, I like am totally a fly on the wall, nothing to contribute. Are you fascinated or are you like, come on, people, that's... I think it's it's funny to watch people be passionate about anything. So I enjoy watching them, but I, I don't have anything to... They're just talking about a whole other... It's like a foreign language. So... Back to the, the last year of, of making or trying to write the show. Is there part of you that fears, that doesn't want it to, to happen because you're afraid that you'll always be self-conscious and, and writing your life as you walk through it? Uh, a lot of my fear is um, out of love and concern for my family. And in writing these personal stories, how um, how can they affect relationships with the people that you love Especially because, you know, a story, there's like capital T truth. There's a sequence of events that everyone can, you know, fact check and agree did or did not happen. But the way that you're perceiving information is so often like your own, like, agenda, your own bias, your own, like, way you hear people. And so it's hard to say that my version is the right version. I, I asked David Sedaris about that, about how, you know, you and Amy wanted to be public people, but you've dragged everybody else in for, for their whole lives. And I asked how his father and his brother and his mother uh, felt about that. I've talked to him about it, but I mean, it took like a lot of, um, like I didn't tell them about what I was doing for about the first year of it because I didn't know if it was going to go through or not. And I didn't want to stir up drama. Uh, partly because I'm writing, it's not so much what I'm writing about my family. It's what I'm writing about Mormonism in that. Um, I think I've been kind of quiet about what I think about the religion. Right. You focus more on your own journey. Yeah. Yes. And I feel like in the last few years, I've uh, started to really look at what it was, you know, and the kind of, origins of it 
the story of Joseph Smith. I mean, like I, we believed some pretty absurd things. And if you questioned them, it was like, what's wrong with you? And now I look at my questions of these absurd things like, okay, so a 14 year old boy was visited by God and Jesus in a pillar of light. And then, you know, years later instructed to dig up this golden book uh, written on gold plates of a history of the Native Americans who originated in, um, who were Jewish uh, and had traveled from the Middle East on a boat to America and were the ancestors of the Native Americans. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just, I mean, there's so many things that, oh, and also there's no historical evidence on earth that any of this is true. <laughs> there's a lot of holes in the plot. And I feel like as a kid, I, I was like pretty up on that and felt like I was bad. I was a skeptical child. I mean, like when, um, when normally you, you get baptized when you're eight years old. And, uh, I, um, when I turned eight, I, everyone was like, Oh, it's your baptism. It's such a big deal. And, uh, I was like, I, you know, I'm, I want to think about it. And so I didn't get baptized for like two months because I was, I had this whole conversation with my parents where they were like, you know, when you're baptized, you're cleansed of your sins. And the day you turn eight is the day that your sins count. So you need to get baptized now. And my point was like, but I haven't done anything yet. You know, I, why not get baptized when I'm 70 and that way I can lead a, lead a fun life. And my parents were like, what, what, <laughs> like, what kind of fun, what, what, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. But I think it was like a part of me. I didn't even know what drinking or sex was, but I was like, I'm holding out. There's more to this than, than meets the eye. But I'm guessing you went through with it. But even, even the introspective eight-year-old decided to go through with it? Uh, when I got baptized, uh, I, you know, it's like a, almost like jacuzzi at church. They have a special, they open like a me, like metal folding curtain and there's this big jacuzzi and you get in and you're baptized. Uh, you have to be fully immersed in water. And the way it works is all the kids kind of, there's a glass wall facing the jacuzzi and everyone will kind of crowd around you to watch. And usually all the kids sit um, in the front. And I remember when I got baptized, I went all the way under, but my dress flipped up like completely. And my dad pulled me back up. And the first person I saw was this really obnoxious boy a year older than me. And he just mouthed to me, I saw your underwear. <laughs> and I instantly was like, Oh, I already, I already sinned. I've already made a mistake. <laughs> I'll never be pure again. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you were probably thinking that's going to be comedy gold someday. <laughs> thinking about this show and making it and your parents you've had quite a what about 15 year journey from the first piece i think i mean i think i i really did hear your i'm a virgin and have never drank piece back then have they taken that ride with you okay it sounds like you're all still close yes although i feel like i live in constant fear <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm like, at any point, I'm afraid that being myself uh, and telling the truth will um, jeopardize my relationship with them. It's mostly, it's more my mother than my father. Um, my mother is, um, I would say, more the more religious of the two, although they're both religious. And she has very, um, it means a lot to her. And so it also is this instinct of motherly fear. So my life choices make her feel a tremendous amount of fear, but also like she's failed as a mother. So it's, it's, it, it threatens her on two really vulnerable spots. My mother's been gone eight years and I still fear her judgment when I make things, but I also haven't created nearly as much since she's been gone. I think that fear drives a lot of creativity. Because you want to be understood? You want to be understood and and you're also still rebelling and feel the need to express myself, yourself, oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, and without that challenging force there, uh, I think for other people, you know, it's different people, but you know, for me it was mom. Uh it, there isn't as much to She was also my biggest fan. My mom also has very specific views about fame. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in in a sense, like, and that's part of the, the Mormon narrative. Uh, it's so funny. I always have to, I'll give you like a little history lesson to understand this thing. But it's, it's well, hopefully not boring, but basically the very in the very beginning of the book of mormon uh there's this story of it's called lehi's dream and um lehi was a prophet and he has this vision and it's actually really interesting it's like a metaphor right and in the vision and i'm i don't remember all the points of it but basically there's there's this um iron rod and um it's like a physical like rod like going horizontally um that everyone in his family is holding on to and they're in this midst of darkness and fog and um they're being tempted on all sides to let go of the rod and the rod is a metaphor for the word of god and righteousness and as they try to make it through this wilderness surrounded by these midst of darkness if they hold on to the rod long enough, they'll reach what is this glowing tree with um, uh, like fruit on it. And the fruit is the um, a tree of life and immortality, right? And so the goal is to do everything religion tells you to hold on to this rod and not get distracted and make it to that tree. And one of the main reasons that people get distracted and let go of the rod is there's this, um, what is called the great and spacious building. And in the great and spacious building are basically all these like rich people, um, who are, uh, pointing and laughing at the righteous and mocking them. Wow. And the, um, two of Lehi's children end up letting go of the rod to go join the great and spacious building and laugh at the righteous. And it's often equated to um, worldly riches and fame is the decision to go to the great and spacious building, 
which to, you know, so I grew up, it's like, it's such a part of Mormonism, this, this thing I'm teaching you that like shorthand of the great and spacious building is sort of like giving up your soul for wealth and fame. And, uh, and yet like, you know, now, now that I think about it, I'm like, like, you know, you, I live in New York, so a gr- like great and spacious, but like, well, is it like rent controlled? Like, tell me more, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, like it actually doesn't sound that bad. Uh, but if you choose to let go of the rod, um, you, uh, you will n- not make it to the tree of life and you will not get to be with your family for eternity. So by making this choice to join the world, you sacrifice um, being with your family. And so in my mother's eyes, that's the decision that I've made. Uh, and that has created a lot of friction in our, in, in our relationship. And so no matter how successful I, I were to get or be, it, it doesn't actually matter because it's further evidence that I've strayed. Right. If anything, it could make it worse. Worse. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, that is a powerful impetus or anti-impetus. So here you are progressing. In, is there a timeline in, in the real world for that right now? Are you waiting to hear? Yeah, I'm waiting to hear. But in fact, and this is actually funny, I am... Um, uh, so I went, I, I went and when I pitched the TV show, you know, you, you pitch to like, you know, 11 or so various networks. Right. And, um, you know, it's like a, I had practiced the pitch. I had the pitch down and, um, we were pitching to one network that was more like a, a dude kind of comedy network. And some of the things in my show were more serious. And so the person I was pitching it with was like, you know, I think for this pitch, you know, they're probably not going to buy it. So have more fun with it. Like make it jokier. Don't lean so heavily on the more serious themes. And, you know, we'll just do this, this pitch to, to kind of practice one basically. And so I went and did the pitch and talking about like pretty heavy ideas around like leaving religion and trying to, you know, integrate into the world and cross over that border of being a believer and becoming a non-believer, but making jokes about real things. Right. And however I was delivering it was like, it was probably the funniest one I'd ever done. Like I was having fun with it and I was making light of all this stuff. And the dudes that I was pitching to were joking with me and we kept like bopping back and forth. And as I was like, totally on this high of like really selling it, I heard a voice in my head, which felt like it didn't come from me. And it said, um, so this is what it feels like to sell your soul. And I like, it was like, I got the wind knocked out of me and I, and then it, it continued to quote this scripture that was a Mormon scripture of, um, many are called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are set so much upon the things of the world. Uh, and I like basically went white and robotically tried to finish the pitch but, um, you know, the people I were, was pitching with after were like, are you okay? It seemed like something happened in there. And I like told them this and, you know, they had to like really comfort me, like hold my, and be like, you know, don't, it's not real. Like what you, you know, your condition to, to have these sort of responses 
Um, and truthfully, like pitching something is a little like, it's not, I'm not interpreting it wrong. It is a little like selling your soul, but I have a, like, like a religious barometer to like apply to it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I actually, after that happened, cause I think, you know, I've not been Mormon for seven years. I, I felt like, I thought I was further along and that I wouldn't, I, that I couldn't be, uh, thrown off quite so effectively by a voice in my own head. And so that actually like was the impetus for me to, to start going to therapy and, and to address some of the, the ways in which this inner sabotage comes from, from an old way of thinking. And that reminds me of your father having heard voices that you just was just in your recent piece. I think your, your mother would say that what you were hearing was more real, not, not real. Totally. I mean, and that's, and when I say voices, it's actually the Holy ghost. So we were raised to think that the Holy ghost could, didn't have a body like Jesus. And so that meant the Holy ghost could enter anyone's body and could like basic, it's very, <laughs> when you were thinking about it, you're like, okay, that's creepy. But uh, <laughs> the Holy ghost can enter your body and like go into your mind and tell you the truth. It was actually a weird way of like detaching your emotions from yourself because emotions were often attributed to the Holy ghost. So like if you were driving and you had a sudden feeling of fear on the highway and you're like, you know, I need to get off the highway. You would then later say like, you know, the Holy ghost told me there was going to be an accident on the highway. And I, you know, I followed that prompting and who knows if there even was an accident, but I, but I have the Holy ghost, you know, (laughs) am I getting too off topic? of No, no, this is great. Just feels like a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning because I don't know how to. I, I love that. That was that was. That's a lot more um, pressure of, of being a sellout than most people even face. I think part of me has failed repeatedly, not wanting to sell out <laughs> in one way or the other. Uh, but it's more based on my the the, the complete opposite. My secular lefty parents and my punk rock upbringing you mean like the idea of like capitalism too capitalism and anything time you make something that gets to a certain level of popularity it's probably bullshit Mm -hmm. (laughs) i i wanted to to change all the way back to the beginning when you talk about when you craft pieces for the radio that you often think about no audience is that what you're saying when you first make them yeah, it depends on the story, but I will say like I have a, a almost like a trance I can go into when I'm really like hooked in where I can see the story. I, you know, I can see what to do and I just sort of follow that. And part of making it is just getting it all down. And I will resist for a really long time where I'm like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm mulling and mulling and then I'll just sit down and it's like I get it out there. Um there's often a fear of judgment and if in a fear of how people will see me and I'm a perfectionist too, uh, or I battle that. And, um, I battle, um, the desire to be liked. And so, uh, one thing that has helped me 
get around that is to say... I feel like those feelings when you watch a movie or a show are because they weren't, often because they just weren't completely honest. Yeah, and I find, I mean, part of the thing that's given me the courage to do it is watching the people who do it. Uh, to me, it's like a, it's the best arsenal. It's the best tool in your arsenal. It's like a laser pointed, at least when I watch it happen on stage, I feel like there's like a Care Bear shine from them, their heart to mine, where I'm like, oh, I see you. Uh, and so even though I don't want to be the one up there doing it, I feel like I've, I have experienced a lot of value and strength from the people who do that. So that, that has been something that's encouraged me to do that. And again, it's such a fine line between um, self-indulgent confessional and like that getting to that point of truth. And I think a lot of that is in the editing. Is there anyone in particular that comes that you that who comes to mind who really that their risks make you more comfortable with your own? Yeah, I mean, I guess like I remember um, watching Richard Pryor's special, and like he covers a lot of unsafe territory. I mean, it often happens like when I'm watching a moth story too, and and I feel like that's it doesn't always happen, but when I see people get really vulnerable, that's why it reminds me that that I love the moth for that exact thing they bring to the table. When it's good, it's, it's great. Exactly. Yeah. What do you have? Do you perform regularly? Do you have any, do you have have a a certain number of stories per year that you make for this American life? Or is there, what is your day-to-day existence as an artist? With that, it's like if a story, you know, if they're making a show and a story comes up or you have an idea, I've worked there for six years. And I feel like it's um, the thing that it it has really helped me develop is like a critical mind and understanding like they are so uh, incredible and smart and they call bullshit and they investigate and they're curious and they try to see things from an angle that makes it surprising and original. And so I've, uh, just learned a lot from watching the people who work there and watching how they work. And so that's made me as, as somebody who's creating, it's made me more, more critical. But I think the downside of that is that it makes it harder for me to make stuff. And so I feel a little, um, I'm, I'm very harsh on my, my own ideas and, and where I'm like, well, I'll think of an idea for a story and I'll like, ah, is it enough? And then I start to analyze it too much. And uh, so I, you know, spend half of my week or 20 hours working for the show. And then, you know, the other time is spent trying to switch gears and, and then and be like free and creative. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's a tricky balance. Yeah, sure. It might be a perfect balance, the critic and the, the freedom. Does that mean that you are you working on developing stuff you are working on, or are you working on, say, last week's White Haze on every episode? Uh, I, it's in a sense, it's like I know what every episode is, you know, slated to come up. I know what those are. I go out and I try to talk to various writers and comedians 
that I think are talented, find stories that they have, see if I can match them or just pitch those stories separately and say, you know, let's try to think of a theme for a show that has something to do with this. So I am kind of more, I'm more in the, I'm in the background a little. I'm not like right in there making those shows. Right. But are you on the streets trying to see what, you know, throw, you know, like writing jokes for a, for, for a late night? Are you, the white haze is the topic, you know, white supremacist groups, and then you go, a lot of people go out and research it, and then you get together and decide which ones you're going to run, you run with? Or are you only involved in some episodes? We're all kind of thinking of all of them at the same time. And so like with a show like White Haze, it's, you know, I, you know, will try to think of like, oh, what's a good story from a comedian that would fit here? But then often it's like, I don't know. Is there a story from a comedian that adds to this really important conversation? Uh, maybe not. Maybe I'll move on to like a totally different, lighter episode. Uh, so you, are you the comedy person? Yeah, I'm kind of, yeah, I, and I was brought into the show specifically to look for stories that were coming from comedians. And, you know, it's been, it's been really fun in the last six years. Some of the stories that I brought to the show and then gotten to see them produce and really make. And, and that, that's been cool to be like, oh, I've, I've contributed to this person's voice getting out in the world. Well, that, that's a wonderful role. Do you get up? Do you do stand up? I've only seen you tell stories. Yeah, I've just, it's funny. I just started thinking more. You know, I wanted to do stand up ever since I was a kid and first tried it when I was maybe 20. Uh, and it, it, I felt very intimidated. And I, I think I got into it at a time when it was more, more male heavy. Not that it still isn't. Now it's just perfectly <laughs> balanced. So balanced. But I feel like everything I felt, um, I mean, the first time I did stand up at an open mic, uh, a guy before me, like people weren't laughing. And so he was like, well, maybe you'll laugh at my dick. And he took his penis out and then like rubbed it against the microphone. Oh, my fucking God. And I was Mormon. Like, I mean, I was already like, no, I didn't even really uh, no penises in general. So that was already shocking. But also, like, I had to take the microphone that had just touched this man's penis and then try to tell these, like, sweet jokes that I was trying to work on. Uh, and I just felt like it felt too crushing to me. And so I, I've been trying to write jokes lately and and really think about this idea that uh, it's something I heard D David Mamet say, but basically that people individually are idiots, but audiences are they're they're geniuses. So he'll write a play and part of the process of writing that play is actually putting up in front of audiences, gauging their reaction, rewriting, putting it up, gauging their reaction, rewriting. And I've um, never looked at stand up that way. So I've, I've sort of brooded and toiled over trying to make some perfect set. And then it never got to that place in my mind. So I never tried it. And so I am trying to think about how, you know, maybe maybe what's missing is the audience and they can teach me what's working and what isn't. And if I'm if it's not good, you can just sort of put a check mark next to that one of like, don't use that and move on to the next one and and not take it so seriously. 
And actually, I think what's interesting, you know, at, at this point, and, and I've been really trying to do this, like it's been my full thing for since I was 18. I mean, I went to school for theater and started writing my own stuff there. But I've been like at this every day for a really long time. <laughs> and I think weirdly, like I wanted to do stand up so much, but was so afraid that I wouldn't be good at it that I developed my storytelling skills and all my experiences in storytelling, partly out of a fear that I couldn't do the other thing. How did you end up with that uh, at, at This American Life as the comedy consultant? Uh, I did. Did you ever come to the talent show? No. Um, it was a variety show that um, myself and Kevin Townley and Anahita Lani ran for about six years. Uh, it was an amazing show. I think I was in San Francisco or or hearing Western Mass when you were doing that in New York, probably. It's, you know, part of like the drunk show that we did at the Eugene Merman Festival. That was part of the talent show. And we would put up these these shows. Um, the infamous drunk show. The infamous drunk show. And so uh, Ira would, would do our shows because uh, he was married to Anahid, who was producing it. Mm-hmm. And he would also just come. And so after many years of coming to shows, he, you know, said that I had a good eye for talent and wanted to see if, you know, first on like a trial basis, if, if I could apply that to this American life. And that's how it started. I'm just, I just can't, you know, the, the flip side of fame is how do people avoid talking about that around the office now? Does the drunk show ever come up and do people laugh? It, it's great radio. Or whatever it was. I feel like, uh, I mean, that, that show, like, is, there's so many funny aspects of that show. But it basically, um, we... Um, Should we give them a little background? Would you tell them what... Yeah, I'll give them. So at the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival, um, I put up a show uh, with my friends Kevin and Anahid and... Um, like five years? Four years ago? About five years ago. No, no, actually, I think it was like six six years ago. Every show we made was like based on a different theme, kind of like how This American Life is. And for this particular show, we decided to do um, a drunk show where all the performers got drunk on stage. And the reason we decided to do that was Kevin, the co-host uh, and also my best friend, he used to get drunk on stage when he would host and he was so funny when he would get drunk. The drunker he got, the funnier he was. And so we're like, oh, this will be great. Kevin will like totally shine at this drunk show. But then, uh, you know, we'd already planned this show months in advance. And then three months before the show, Kevin uh, got sober. And so that put a like kink in our, in our plans. And I had just left Mormonism. I had just started drinking. I knew nothing about drinking. <laughs> Uh, this is a perfect storm. So I came up with the idea. I was like, oh, well, you know, we could still apply it to what you're going through, Kevin. How about we do the drunk show is a drinking game and we call it 12 steps, the drinking game. And each thing we do on stage is an adaptation of one of the steps of AA turned into a game. So like the first step is like admitting you're powerless over alcohol or something. And, uh, and then everybody goes, drink. <laughs> yeah. And we had Leo Allen dress in a giant like uh, beer beer mug costume and you had to arm wrestle him. And if he won, you had to take four shots 
And so this is partly why the drinking show went off the rails super quickly is that I assigned all the penalties and I knew nothing about drinking. So I thought four shots was like totally reasonable because in movies people did shots. So basically early on, like within the first few minutes of the show, performers started to get really, really drunk. And so the show started like really, really kind of cordially. We had Rachel Maddow as our bartender. She was mixing drinks with Hodgman. And then we started playing this drinking game. And by halfway through the show, people were so shit-faced that like Ira was blackout drunk. He didn't remember anything that happened in the show. Uh, I drunk dialed an X on stage uh, and that went terribly. And one of the performers, Ptolemy, got so drunk, he got mad at the audience and threw a chair from the stage out at the audience. Jesus. My friend Matthew was in the house. Matthew Letkowitz. He was. Yeah. It, it was, and it was like, uh, according to Eugene, it was like a perfect PSA for why people shouldn't drink. Like, because it took you through a drunken night as an audience in, you know, an hour and a half. Uh, and we ended up like, uh, Ira got really sick and Ptolemy ended up having to go to the hospital. And so Kevin and I, there was a moment at the hospital where, you know, we're waiting for Ptolemy and we're, we were there till 6am and we're sitting in this waiting room and they're just playing infomercials on loop. And we had been giving out these gag gifts on stage that were related to drinking. So we're sitting there and all of a sudden Kevin's like, Oh, wait a second. And he pulls out of his bag a VHS tape of a, a woman under the influence. Uh-huh, yeah. And of course, it's like an old school TV with a VCR. And he's like, ah, we might as well watch it. And so us and these other people in the hospital waiting room watched a woman under the influence together. <laughs> While you sobered up miserably. <laughs> yes. That's great. So that was the drinking show. Is it still out there on the... Is it... Is it on the internet somewhere or is it just legend? It's sort of just legend. Apparently there's a video of it, but I've never seen it and it's not online. I feel like I, was it ever? No, it's never been online. Do I just know about it from Matthew and Hodgman and maybe Eugene? People talk about it. And when I meet people who've seen it, I instantly get really embarrassed because I just feel like they, they, they saw me with like, like my ass hanging out or something. I'm just like, oh no. My memories are of of Ira being the most memorably horrible. <laughs> yes, Ira was like so sweet and funny and like, but just drunk. I think I asked, but I don't think we ever. Heard. When do you expect to know whether you're going to be making a show that ruins your family relationships? <laughs> I really shouldn't say it like that. <laughs> I'm trying to be positive. <laughs> Um, I don't know, you know, it's, it turns out like the process is, uh, is never ending with making things. And so I'm, I'm working with great people, but in a process that is, who knows? So very much who knows, but at this point I do feel like I've, uh, when I wrote my book, I spent about two years on it and it was a lot of like dreaming, but then writing it down. and the strange thing about this is I feel a little vulnerable in that I spent almost two years making up all this stuff, but I only have it kind of jotted down like in on note cards of possible scenes. It's not, I don't have like a brick I can drop on your desk and be like, here's, here are my thoughts. They're actually just all in my head. 
And so if it doesn't go through, I think I would probably try to sit down and write it as a book. Do you ever talk about other famous people? Yeah. I feel like uh, the other thing about fame that I find interesting is like, because I, I worked for five years at Nobu, which is this really fancy restaurant that De Niro owns. And I was a hostess. And so all these famous people would come in. Part of my own resistance to it is seeing seeing the behavior and also seeing, I don't know, I find famous people disturbing, <laughs> like super famous people. Right. Well, that was Ira's argument at dinner. He was like, I don't want to put them on a show, not just because I like stories of normal people, but because I don't like them. Like there was this one um, male celebrity. That narrows it down. Yeah, that narrows it down. Um that I, he had a personal chef, right? And so he'd come in with a personal chef and then his personal chef like hit on me and then ended up like hanging out with me. Uh, but I was Mormon then. So he kept like pressuring me to, to have sex or like making fun of me. And when I really was like, I'm not, you know, I really don't do that. And he was like, well, hold on. And he called the celebrity up to get the celebrity to tell me to lose my virginity. And it was, it was just such a strange, uh, I don't know. And, and the thing that I thought of when I was on the phone with a celebrity was he had told me that um, he and the celebrity um, would like to play this game where like the, they're so, he's so wealthy. He has so much that um, to actually buy a thing is kind of meaningless because it's, it, it, you know, you can buy anything, but you can't buy um you can't buy a person and a person making choices or breaking their own character. That's a thing you can't buy. And so that they like to test people as a game because that was the unachievable thing. So like there was a, there was like a guy on set uh, who was married and, you know, had a great family and would always sort of talk about his sort of Christian family values. And so they they were shooting something in Japan and they sent um, this beautiful uh, hooker to his room and he ended up sleeping with the hooker. And that to them was like, like such an achievement. Yeah, because you said you can't buy a person's decisions, but I guess the, the great glory for them is that you can. Oh, God, we got to end on a happier note than that. What's the nicest celebrity thing you've ever seen happen in a... Have I ever seen a celebrity being nice? That's a really good question. I Actually, I have one. Uh, I was asked to do an event. This was like pretty early in my comedy career. Um, and Judy Bloom was on the event. And uh, she was really sweet to me, nice to me, got my email address. And then uh, emailed me a few days later that it was such like a thorough email. It was like, oh, I went to the grocery store with my husband. His name is, it was like a long, like a page long email about her like day when she was, it was just so sweet. Right. And I was so intimidated because I love Judy Bloom. I grew up reading Judy Bloom that I started like trying to compose the perfect email and then overanalyzing my email that I never wrote her back. Oh, Elna. 
Cause I, cause too much time passed and then it was too weird. And then I just, I was like, so, but that was, it was just totally sincere and kind. Um, yes. The, the one thing since this has happened that was wonderful. And I think writers don't even count because I think they rarely get the chance to be that full of themselves. Uh, but after you should listen to the first five minutes of the David Sedaris, because I finally, I reach him in his hotel room and he starts off by saying, okay, can I have your address, please? And I'm like, excuse me. And he gets my mailing address. And after we recorded, he sent me the nicest postcard. Well, I hope I'll see you down in the city in the coming months. And I hope I'll hear amazing news about the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, Elna. You're welcome. Have a good weekend. You can find links to many wonderful things, Elna Baker, at elnabaker.website, which I did not know was a suffix. That's E-L as in Larry, N as in Nancy, A, Baker, dot, website, spelled in the traditional fashion. I'm not going to include a bunch of other links. You can go there and find many, many great Elna Baker stories uh, and pieces, but I would really recommend from the Tell Me I'm Fat episode of This American Life. The whole episode is great. Uh, her specific segment of it is called It's a Small World After All. It's from June 17th, 2016, episode 589. If you go to her site, you can't miss it. Want to find out more about this show? Go to 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 1-5-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. As ever, Ed Patnode engineers the show. Christian Kandari wrote our theme song. And we'll be back next week trying to keep one hand on that iron rod while still reaching for that great and spacious building. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.